0: This is an educational series by the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. I wanted to give you a heads up that we had some technical difficulty on these four episodes on Ignatius of Antioch. The original seven first episodes of the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show were done on Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch on a condenser mic, which failed. And I did not realize that it had failed until after I got into post-production for these four episodes on Ignatius of Antioch. So I had to use some backup audio. I want to give you a behind-the-scenes tour real quick of our studio, where I have made some pretty sizable upgrades in order to give you a lot better quality and listening experience. So stick with these four episodes on Ignatius. I did polish the audio quite a bit, even though it's backup, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Thanks. This is going to be the first episode where we actually start digging into some of his epistles and going through them. Today, we're going to be starting with the uh, epistle of Ignatius to the Ephesians and try to get into one other, if time allows us. Who was Ignatius? Remember, we talked about him as being one of the third, the third bishop of Antioch in modern-day Turkey. What was important for us to remember is that this uh, city of Antioch is, according to Acts the Apostles, uh, chapter 11, where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And Ignatius is also uh, the first person to call the church Catholic. And it's Antioch, where the church was first called Catholic, uh, a term that would later be incorporated into the creed and that would later be used uh, for distinguishing the fullness of the faith from those that would pick and choose. We talked uh, a little bit about his life. We didn't talk a whole lot about his journey From uh, Syria to Rome to be executed. But we'll get into that a little bit in his uh, epistles as we go through them. I left with one of the couple of themes that we talked about, right? And the one that is going to come up uh, later in Ephesians very clearly of the different themes that I suggested we should look at is um, that Christ is both God and man, he is both divine and human. I think that's something that will pop up. In chapter 7 of the Epistle to the Ephesians. So let's go ahead and dig into it. Starting with uh, chapter 1. And the greeting, right? You know, Ignatius was also called Theophorus. Uh, That was one of his other titles uh, or names that he had chosen for himself or was given. Chapter 1. For on hearing that I became bound from Syria for the common name and hope, that is, for being a Christian... Trusting through your prayers to be permitted to fight with beasts at Rome, so that by martyrdom I may indeed become the disciple of him who gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God. I receive, therefore, your whole multitude in the name of God through one Simus, a man of inexpressible love, and your bishop in the flesh, whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love, that you would all seek to be like him. And blessed be he who granted unto you being worthy to obtain such an excellent bishop. Let's take a look at that first little section, right? And you'll find this a couple of different points throughout his letters where he starts uh, to talk about becoming a disciple. And I want to sit back and say... You're a bishop and a leader getting ready to be martyred for your faith. Like you've known Christ and followed in his commandments and followed and lived as a Christian for a number of years, for decades before this point. And it's finally at this point that you're now saying, so that by martyrdom, I may indeed become the disciple of him who gave himself for us. And I, I think that was one of the striking things for me is that he talks about really the point at which we become disciples of God and disciples of Christ is when we suffer for him. He's not saying that everything else is all superficial and show and doesn't really matter. But for him, like the essence of becoming a disciple is not a mere profession of faith. It's not a verbal utterance. It is not him saying something. It's not him talking the talk. It's not even walking the walk and doing all of these great things that we could do in God's name. Uh, And in the name of Jesus Christ, for him, becoming a disciple was being incorporated into Christ's passion. And you can kind of start to see that just here, you know, very early on in chapter one. Chapter two, as to my fellow servant Burrus, your deacon in regard to God and blessed in all things, I beg that he may continue longer, both for your honor and that of your bishop. It is therefore befitting that you should in every way glorify Jesus Christ, that by unanimous obedience, you may be perfectly joined together in the same line and in the same judgment. All may speak the same thing concerning the same thing. And that being subject to your bishop and the presbytery, you may in all respects be sanctified. But one of the things that i had hinted on earlier is that, you know, he doesn't really explain the difference between a, a episcopus and a presbyterus, between a bishop and a priest. Um, and that's something that's a little bit lacking, I think. Now, obviously, that wasn't one of his concerns. Uh, that we would maybe have in later generations of what exactly is the difference between these two. For him, he uses the different words, but he doesn't really explain the difference. But he views that the Christian community there has the responsibility to maintain unity with their bishops and their priests. And he also looks here and talks about, you know, that, you know, you may be joined together perfectly, be in the same judgment, speaking the same thing concerning the same thing he's talking about livings. we just all kind of cowtail and you know follow in line with whatever is being said it's not exactly what he's talking about right he's not saying that you can't have different trades he's not saying you don't have different interests he's not saying you don't have different gifts but especially when it comes to fundamental teaching on jesus christ what he wants to see is unity in the church and this whole modern conception that even uh, someone like martin luther uh, towards the end of his life, right? You know, Martin Luther, the great uh, revolutionary, the, you know, one of the founders of the Protestant Reformation, the founder of the Lutheran Church, you know, even, um, even in his rejection of uh, his bishops, and, and there's an interesting s- story behind that, that hopefully I can do uh, an episode series on Luther's life and what I think were some of the personal conflicts and struggles that he dealt with under what seemed to be a very abusive father, Uh, that may have influenced his personal spiritual struggles. But one of the interesting things, even Luther, who would ultimately reject the Catholic faith and teaching, would at the end of his life be known to have made the statement that Uh, everybody began rejecting him. And he said, there's as many theologies as there are heads. And, you know, at one point, Luther recognized that the only way that the Christian uh, organization of believers, this kind of nebulous blob of, all dissenting theologies, where literally, you know, in my words, everybody is their own Pope, in his words, there's a theology for every head or every person out there, and one teaches this, and one teaches that, and they contradict each other and stuff like that. You know, Luther would even say that at a certain point, you know, the the Christians would have to turn again to the councils and the teachings of of the early church to try to sort out all of these distances. Now, it's a paraphrase. I'll see if I can dig that quote up here for you, but You know, uh, Ignatius is really saying the same thing, and that is, you know, in certain basic aspects of who Christ is and who our salvation is, um, we should all be on the same page. We shouldn't be picking and choosing. Skipping down to chapter three, I do not issue orders to you as if I were some great person, for though I am bound for the name of Christ, I am not yet perfect in Jesus Christ. For now I begin to be a disciple, and I speak to you as fellow disciples with me. For it was needful for me to have been stirred up by you in faith, exhortation, patience, and long-suffering. And again, there's that thing. For now, I begin to be a disciple. Like, how beautiful of a statement is that? And how absurd is it, too? What do you mean? You know, that, that would be like saying uh, some of the great men that fought in World War II, uh, even family members of mine uh, who were shot by the Nazis in South France, uh, crossing the Moselle River. That would be like him saying, you know, now I begin to become a soldier. No, you've been a soldier for a long time. You've you fought in a lot of battles and stuff like that. And he were to say, no, now is when I actually become a soldier. That's what Ignatius is talking about. He is viewing the essence of being a disciple of Christ as an imitation of his passion, like I mentioned before. And he also views that Uh, He he doesn't find himself to be better than everybody else. Like He even finds encouragement uh, from those that he's writing and his friends Uh, and learning from them. Skipping down to chapter four, uh, more continued, Where it's befitting that you should run together in accordance with the will of your bishop, which thing also you do for your justly renowned presbytery worthy of God is fitted as exactly to the bishop as the strings are to the harp. Therefore, in your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. And he talks about this, this unity and this interrelationship between the bishop, between the priests, and between the Christian believers and the pews. And when, uh, when they're all out of whack, that's when you get the, uh, the Afghan jumping jacks, so to speak, if you've seen that video online, or where you get an out-of-tune instrument. It is profitable, therefore, that you should live in a un- unblameable unity, that thus you may always enjoy communion with God. And so you can kind of see in, insinuated there that uh, dissent and disunity, you know, is at least by application a threat to one's communion with God. Skipping now to chapter five, again, the praise of unity. For if I in this brief space of time have enjoyed such fellowship with your bishop, I mean, not of a mere human, but of a spiritual nature. How much more do I reckon you happy who are joined to him as the churches to Jesus Christ and as Jesus Christ is the father so that all things may agree in unity. For if the prayer of one or two possess much power, how much more that of the bishop in the whole church. For it's written, God resists the proud. Let us be careful then not to see ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. That is... um, Rehashing, you know, the same things that I've said. He he talks about basically the Christian believer's identity um, in union with God as being inseparable. And i would kind of talked about that in part one, where we talk about the vertical relationship with uh, with God through the keeping of commandments, faith in Jesus Christ, our living the virtuous life, and doing the works that Christ has called us to do in His name. But he also views that horizontal plane of keeping unity with with our hierarchy and with fellow believers as being you know, an inseparable aspect of, you know, being a Christian. Skipping down to chapter six, we ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household as would we would him that sent him. And so he views that, you know, rejecting the legitimate leaders of the church as being, you know, dangerous to one's salvation. He skips down chapter seven, for some are in the habit of caring about the name of Jesus Christ in wicked guile, while they yet practice things unworthy of God, whom you must flee as you would wild beasts. For they are ravenous dogs who bite secretly, against whom you must be on guard, and as much as they are men who can scarcely be cured. Here is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable, then impassable, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is he talking about here? Right. So if if you look, and as I had mentioned earlier, one of the early um, sects that kind of Uh, stirred and broke away and, and started disseminating teachings, you know, uh, in the church that did not come from the apostles were the Gnostics and the docetists who got their beliefs in, in a certain aspect from Greek philosophy that matter was evil. And he says, you know, he's talking and warning of false teachers now there are obviously other ones but the primary one here you can kind of see in this this last sentence god existing in the flesh and he's saying that you know jesus christ was true god and true man as we would say in later uh, you know later formulas that uh he was both of mary and of god he was not of god and you know reported to be of mary thought to be of Mary, but flesh of flesh took flesh from the Virgin uh, and was true man. And he talks about first passable, then impassable. And a lot of this that he's talking about is what we would later hash out at the council of Nicaea and in later generations, the council of Ephesus, you know, do we call is Mary the mother of Jesus? Is he the mother of God? What does it mean that he's got these two natures? Is he one person, but two natures and a lot of the first councils in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries would really be about clarifying in very specific technical terminology what it exactly meant when we talked about, you know, Jesus Christ being true man and true God. And we can kind of see that implicitly here when Ignatius is warning against those who uh, would, would present false teaching, um, who would say that he was not of the flesh, but only appeared to be. Skipping down here to chapter ten, and pray without ceasing in behalf of all men. Again, that's you know a very Pauline phrase. For there is in them hope of repentance that they may attain to God. And I talked about that a little bit with Clement, right, in his first letter to the Corinthians, the only one that survives us. And that is, even those who are estranged from God, especially you know those fallen away Christians, um, implicitly, you know, there still is hope of repentance in them. And I think, you know, obviously he's not saying those are apostates who come back, but I think implicitly within that is what the church would later say that, you know, even Judas, even the apostates, those that denied Christ, you know, under torture of the Roman emperors or of later Soviet governments or whatever, in, in any way in shape and time and country and generation, you know, ultimately all who are still alive can find, you know, redemption and salvation as long as they live on this earth. And it is our responsibility to have that hope that they could turn to God. Continuing that. See then that they be instructed by your works, if in no other way, be meek in response to their wrath, humble in opposition or boasting. If their blasphemies return your prayers in contrast to their error. Be steadfast. And for their cruelty, manifest your gentleness while we take care not to imitate their conduct. Let us be found their brethren in all true kindness Let us seek to be followers of the Lord, whoever more unjustly treated, more destitute, more condemned, so that no plant of the devil may be found in you, but you remain in all holiness and sobriety in Jesus Christ, both respect to the flesh and to the spirit. And what he's talking about is that, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, the sovereign actions of the state and, you know, not like, you know, the robber who's kicking your door to attack your family or something like that, you know, but when we have those people placed over us, um, who are using God's authority to do evil? The way that Christ set forward for us as the example is um, not, you know, a, a violent, you know, institution of the kingdom and salvation through the sword. Uh, whether or not sometimes we may need to resist wicked and evil men, um, as did family and friends during, uh, you know, World War II. But you you would sit back and say, like, you know, at a certain point, we really need to let our attitude be that we will not um, repay evil with evil. Now, sometimes evil must be resisted with force. But even then, our heart must be to pray ceasingly and for the repentance and conversion. Like, even the most wicked of individuals who we may stop with violence to stop from hurting kids or stuff like that, our attitude is not, you know, ah, screw them, damn to hell. No, our attitude really must be one of pity like our Lord, you know, Frustrated, yes, at Judas's betrayal, but frustrated more at Judas's lack of repentance. Skipping down to chapter 11. Only in one way or another, let us be found genuinely in Christ Jesus unto the true life. And in this context, he's talking about, you know, uh, for him living in the last times um, and the, the fear of the long suffering of God. And the difficulties that we may not be led to, you know, our condemnation and apostasy. Said, but basically, you know, through all of the struggles that we have, our ultimate prayer should be, you know, that we retain our friendship with Christ. And Paul talks about that a little bit in Romans eight, you know, about how things don't separate. Some, you know, nothing can separate us from Christ, as far as sin and as far as suffering and the rest of it. Now, obviously, sin yes can separate us from Christ and I misspoke there, but, you know, obviously, you know, in Romans 8, there's this whole conception of, like, all of the, the physical sufferings and evils of this world, you know, that befall us, like Job. That doesn't separate us from God, but sin does. Skipping down to chapter 12, you are initiated into the mysteries of the gospel with Paul, the holy, the martyr, deservedly most happy, at whose feet may I be found, why I shall attain God, who in all his epistles makes mention of you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is another interesting point that I want to make here with chapter 12, and that is we can start, you know, in the in the second century especially, we can start to see how the early church was still struggling and still, you know, assembling, so to speak, the books of the New Testament, discerning and praying to the Spirit of God. Uh, which books do we receive? Which are the authentic ones? And so one of the things that obviously will, will be uh, a factor in that is what books of the Bible that were circulated, either written by apostles or forgeries written in the name of apostles, which ones did the church receive and respect? And that will be a great aspect. And we can see a reference here to Paul and his epistles as being one aspect, uh, much as in Ignatius' epistles, you know, the seven of them that we respect are, you know, in a certain sense, those that were later received and preserved and bore witness to by Irenaeus or by Eusebius or other church writers of the time period. Skipping down to chapter 13. take heed then often to come together to celebrate God's Eucharist and show forth his praise for when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Wow. I I would have to say that's definitely one of the most important chapters of, of this entire epistle. And that is this whole modern conception of I don't need to go to church. I can worship God fishing on my boat on the lake on Sunday, you know, that that's absurd, right? Like, Ignatius is saying that, like, you know, the power of God, and the power of Christ is found in your unity and that your duty is to meet together. Um, now, obviously, it doesn't say if you're going, if you don't show up on Sunday, you go to hell. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's viewing it from a much more positive perspective. But then again, in the, in the first couple centuries of Christianity, there was not this legalistic approach to if you don't do this, you're damned, right? There, there still was that whole essence of, you know, if Christ is my friend, I look out for him as a friend. I treat him as a friend. I respond to him as a friend. I serve him as a friend. And we don't really typically with our friends and the people that we love, we don't really typically feel like, you know, oh gosh, it's the in-laws. I got to deal with them this weekend. Eh. I guess so. Like, that's not a Christian attitude towards, you know, our relationship with Christ. So... One of the other things, too, interestingly enough, is he talks about, you know, the importance of the uh, Eucharist here. But, you know, what does he mean? And so, like, the word there is literally Thanksgiving. We don't really get a clear explanation uh, in this particular passage of what he, you know, what he envisions is occurring during that Sunday service. So let's skip down to chapter 14. The tree is made manifest by its fruit. Those that profess themselves to be Christian shall be recognized by their conduct there is not now a demand for mere profession but that a man can be found continuing in the power of the faith to the end." Uh, I'm not much for bumper stickers but that's a that's a pretty good bumper sticker if you're ever gonna pull one from that. Christians shall be recognized by their conduct and interestingly enough it was during this time period in the first couple of centuries uh, and even later that the pagans had a tremendous respect for you know the Christian ministry. Because of how it took care of the poor and how it took care of the sick and how they really manifested Christ's concern with uh, not having fear over what would befall them, but, you know, fearing that they would fail their neighbor and thus fail God. Skipping down to chapter 15, it's better that a man to be silent and be a Christian than to talk and not be one. There's nothing which is hid from God or very secrets are near to him. Let us do all things as those who have him dwelling in us, that we may be his temples and he may be in us as our God, which indeed he is and will manifest himself before our faces. So one of the things I want to challenge with you guys here is that, like, is the snow covered pile of horse dew you know, horse dung. Um, is that really how he views the the Christian's state and sanctification? God dwelling in us or God covering us over with grace? What do you guys think is going on here? That we may be his temple's. You know, can God dwell in the midst of sin and wickedness? You know, When when idols were set up, when evil was done in the face of the Lord, the Lord withdrew his His presence from that. So my question for you is, how can we be snow-covered dunghills? Is that what Ignatius would take a view of uh, grace and salvation and redemption in, in our particular state? I don't think that's the case. It, it seems to me... Well, it's not spelled out in modern later formula, um, as those who have Him dwelling in us, we may be His temples. That we that He may be in us as our guard, which indeed He is. Like for Ignatius, there really is this interior indwelling and sanctification of the Christian, you know, that occurs as as one who's in covenant with God. Skipping down to chapter sixteen. Do not err, my brethren. Those that corrupt families shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do this as respects the flesh have suffered death. How much more will this be the case for anyone who corrupts by wicked doctrine the faith of God for which Jesus Christ was crucified? Such a one becoming defiled in this way will go into everlasting file, and so every one that hearkens unto them. So, you know, he's talking about those that, you know, defile families and do wickedness, particularly sexual immorality. Those sins are far worse, uh, are, are far less. Uh, and what is far worse is those who corrupt the faith of Christ. And again, he's giving this dig at the Docetists and the Gnostics. Let's skip down here to chapter 19, which will be kind of the focus at the end of this uh, epistle. Now the virginity of Mary was hidden from the prince of this world, as was also her offspring and the death of the Lord. Three mysteries of renown, which were wrought in silence, by God. Now that's interesting. Um, a couple of takeaways here on chapter nineteen: uh, Mary conceived as a virgin, not in the way that you know a virgin on her wedding night is, and you know, and you know, is uh, conceives of a child by her husband. But here, you know, Ignatius is talking about you know the prepartum at least virginity of Mary. Um, obviously, later councils would go into the debates of, you know, of spelling out uh, whether she was a virgin before, during and after. But, you know, you can very clearly see that uh, for Ignatius, Jesus was not, you know, a natural child of Joseph or of any other man. He, he's very clearly affirming the virginity of Mary. And he's also talking about uh, Mary being, you know, her child which would get us into some of the later debates of whether, you know, Jesus is the mother, uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus, right? Or of the Lord and, and how we get into that. And he talks about these being three mysteries, which were wrought in silence of God. And I want you guys in your own time to kind of go through here, uh, chapter 19, and kind of take a look at this and really reflect on that. Because I, I think this, uh, this aspect here, along with what we'll get into in a later series on Justin Martyr, is one of those first things that we can really start to develop Uh, a more clear understanding of mary and Mariology—that that is the study of who mary was in her relationship with jesus but that brings us here to the end of this epistle once again this is your host christopher of the ukrainian fire chaplain show if you have not already go ahead and look at our website theufcshow.com it's got information about us and ways that you can follow subscribe or support us We're on various podcast platforms. We're on Facebook and YouTube. And if you're able to, consider supporting us on Patrone. Also want to give a shout out to Daniel Atchison, the music artist Atch, for permission to use his song forever in our productions. Until next time. like to offer my special thanks to the Antiochian Orthodox Choir Group Incense for letting us use their song The Great Perkimenon. You can find links to their music in the description.